Here's your death sentence for this week, and here's the news. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has been a cunt. Uh, the d- head of the DNC, the C stands for cunt, is doing cunty things online. Um, first, she was being a total cunt to uh, AOC. The C doesn't stand for cunt, it sounds for lovely person. And various other members of a party, mainly POC women, and um, entirely from the justice democrats who are like the good democrats but not as good democrats as the dsa who are not actually democrats so just like a i don't know what, how it works but um then donald trump also cunt uh went and tweeted some racist stuff about how the women should go back to their own countries despite the fact that they're either legally their citizens or they're not actually from other countries they're actually born in america like aoc is and um then, in like really putting like the the cunt cherry on the cunt cake, uh, Nancy Pelosi cunt um, decided to tweet about how her solidarity with her her sisters in the the party and just generally um, be a cunt. So um, going live to Langdon in the cunt copter, uh, monitoring the situation. Langdon, uh, what's the the cunt situation on the ground there? It sucks. Cool. Langdon in the cunt copter. Um, so that's the news for the week. Uh, also, also Jeffrey Epstein still arrested. Um, you know, any names on there that sound like mine and look like mine and kind of read like mine, uh, those aren't me. I never did any of those things, no matter how many times I was photographed doing that. Um, I think it would be tight if Jeffrey Epstein um, was to be killed by, say, a hero. Yeah. Um, and... Okay. I'm not saying that it would automatically make you a hero to kill him, but also that statement would be true if mm. I were to say it. Yeah, we're not saying it. If we did, it would be a true statement. And, and we have you know, many, many times said we are against the carceral state, against prisons. So it would be good if Jeffrey Epstein was like shanked while doing restorative justice. Like, if there was also a skinhead who was doing restorative justice by him and he, like, shanked uh, Jeffrey Epstein, that'd be good. Yeah, I, I could I could accept someone being rehabbed into society if they just gave him a, you know, a quick stabbing. Yeah, sharpened toothbrush. The old uh, shank, as I believe it's called. I watched a lot of Oz when I was a kid. Really messed me up. I also uh, watched a lot of Oz. A really good show. It's like yeah. people often forget about that as like one of the like it came out a long time before Sopranos and it did it was prestige TV before the Sopranos so yeah Oz, An absolutely really just phenomenal show like yeah. maybe I'm thinking like my my 15 year old brain has elevated it but maybe it's actually just really good well I'm never going to revisit it to uh to learn if it's actually good or bad because I've learned the lesson of going back yeah. That's what happens Never. if you like watch The Matrix again. No one's going to watch The Matrix ever again because we will know what happens. Or probably also Fight Club. Um, not left but... or right, but forward. Not forward, but upward, and always yeah. spinning, spinning towards freedom. Uh, you know who also is a hero is the fellow who um, attacked and firebombed a ice concentration camp. 
Yeah. Um, uh, just yeah. absolutely sincerely. Um, yeah. Just like no irony post in here. Uh, yeah. Guy is an, a total hero here. He like, realized the conditions of the world in which uh, he is in. He looked at history and saw the parallels um, and did what we rightly praise French resistance and Polish resistance uh, and Soviet fighters for having done all through uh, all through Europe during uh, the Nazis. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's people on, like, banknotes of countries around the world who have done less than that guy and paid less of a price for it. So, uh, yeah, um, shout out to him. And he has a... he. Really, it, it, I don't know of the authenticity of this, but there's a... Um, like free pages of writing going around online. I saw on like Reddit of his like final statement. And I saw it too. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it's authentic. Uh, there was some weird chatter about him maybe being trans, but that doesn't seem to be correct. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just big ups to him. Hero. kind of on, on a hero tip here because we're going to be talking about some of our, our, our personal heroes um, a trio of psychonauts uh, drug blitzed weirdos uh, sci-fi writers in two or three cases and just people who kind of have a weird influence on the stuff that at least I was reading growing up, and I, I read a hell of a lot of these guys as well. I know, Landon, you said that, like, um, Illuminatus Trilogy is your favorite book of all time. Yeah. Okay. And I did my graduate thesis on Philip K. Dick. Uh, I Colleen... have, uh, we've talked about this on previous episodes. I think we actually both own copies of the uh, Exegesis that was um, uh, edited. I, I did before I had to sell all my books, but yeah. Okay. But yeah, I've owned that. yeah, that was that was part of my graduate thesis. I had to read the whole damn thing because something in that mad load of nonsense could have been relevant to my thesis. Very little was. Um, yeah, it was, uh, and the guy who put the exegesis together and edited it and actually put it out there is Eric Davis. Uh, he's been on kind of in and around this like weirdo freak world for a while now. If any of you all remember uh, Disinformation, which was like a kind of turn-of-the-century effort at like reviving uh, Dick and Terence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson, but also putting in like other high weirdness and some dodgy stuff in there too, because we hadn't quite uh, become woke just yet. Um, and also The Invisibles, which is just all three of them put together. And... Um, Again, a, a massive influence that came on like a really pivotal time of my life, just like early teens. It was like one of the first adult comics I've, I've read, the other being like Preacher, which is, you know, most people's first adult comic and for me, their last. Um, Mine was uh, Sandman and then it was Invisibles. Oh, yeah. San, San, yeah. Sandman, I think, is probably the grown up comic par excellence. 
that everyone has read. And I straight up didn't like it. But um, maybe if I read it again, I'll, I will. But that's, remember, yeah, that's that's a whack opinion, Gareth. Gonna gonna be straight what? up with you. <laughs> whack opinion, not okay, canon. I mean, okay, is it's not whack to think that Neil Gaiman is bad though, like as as a whole, and I, as a human. I I I think yeah. I think that one's a, a little bit whack. I mean, he's he's definitely he shows. Uh, he shows his age when he talks sometimes of definitely being a uh, a left type who came up in a certain era and can't always let go of affects of that era. But I think when you interject, um, it's not the most strident defense of him. I don't think he's like unable to be critiqued at all. But when you interject uh, the fact that, say, like the queer and trans characters that he was incorporating into his early work, were based on um, friends and communities that he knew and was in contact with and wanted to give representation. It makes um, makes them better. It doesn't make mm. them perfect. I'm not trying to say that we can't critically engage with them, but it's, it is at least a different kind of shape than uh, someone just like either maliciously or just for, uh, you know, quick points i'm i mean it he was a necessary stepping stone um in that same frustrating shitty way that it's like we need a uh like a cis white man to say something to validate the worth of something to then let the people it's about mm. start speaking for themselves um yeah. but that i think is more a cultural issue and not neil gaiman like mm. i don't think oh, yeah. that's his fault like <laughs> That's uh, our society is shit and doesn't respect people speaking of their own experience until someone that we respect validates that, mm. which is shit. But yeah, and he was a also pivotal in moving comics from like eighties grim dark thing to a weirder, more playful, more like aware of its own history as like a children's medium. Yeah, thing. And, so that was important feeling... as well. But... And not feeling that that undercuts its ability to tell either mature or whimsical stories that like you don't have to pick or treat these as like elements that will annihilate each other left alone that instead it's they can freely intermingle and one can become dominant briefly and then the next can become dominant and that kind of thing. Yeah, but so I'm sure he's aware of these guys, the people oh. in high weirdness. Um, yeah, you can't yeah, really yeah. go through like 20th century like sci-fi or weird culture without meeting at least one of them. And um, probably Terence McKenna is the most obscure, but he's not obscure. Not um, at all. Um, anyone um, yeah. who dipped into drug culture prior to say like the mid 2000s will inevitably have run into Alan Watts and Taryn McKenna, the Terrence McKenna. Mm. Those are like yeah. the two white dudes par excellence that show up, especially in psychedelic culture as mm. um, Alan mm. Watts being the more cerebral grounding end of like, Hey, this has value because look at what this guy, you know, wrote while he was tripping mad balls and talking to some machinos and shit. And then um, Terrence McKenna being the closest thing to uh how do how best to phrase this uh 
respectful cultural appropriation regarding uh, mm-hmm. native uh, psychedelic usage. Mm, yeah. Now, in, like, if going to if, going into the jungle with all his friends and just doing all the mushrooms that were sacred to people. Now, if you cringe when you hear uh, respectful cultural appropriation, that's a good and correct way to respond. Hmm. Yeah, there's not really you good know, ways to do it. It's better, uh, but it's not good. Yeah, he um yeah, he hit this weird um we talked about this on the uh trip episode, which uh I technically have to tell you that you should listen to because we recorded it and we should not not promote our own work. Mm. But also I I hate Talwin so much in my heart. <laughs> um but yeah, we commented on this uh, there as well that Terrence McKenna had hit this very strange middle ground where he seemed to be uh, proto-woke in that he was aware that there are these... Um... Actually, that's not the best way to de- describe it. He had the kind of exotifying um, or exoticizing uh, sentiment of Aboriginal culture that is also a kind of racist affectation. But he at least used that to table the real cultural thoughts and treatment of these um, alternative spaces that uh, non-Western cultures had. So again, it's not good. It's still technically racist, but it's a different kind of racism. That's my defense of Terrence McKenna, a different (laughs) kind of racist. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it it was a time when people were, you know, I'm... I'm going to have to cut like a time of the season over this for ultimate sixties montage um, thing. So the book is about these guys in the seventies, but these are guys of the sixties. Yeah. That's, yeah. And they're um, as, as much as like Timothy Leary or Alan Watts or anyone, but um, yeah, it was a time when people like Alan Watts could be white dudes who go to uh, the far East for a little while pick up some stuff, come back, and everyone thinks it's groovy. And people get into meditation. People start taking their shoes off when they go into people's houses and so on. And it was a time when you could semi, you could kind of do that without being, um, you know, aware of the of what that entails. And it wasn't like these guys weren't also going into, like, European culture. They were very interested in, like, Carl Jung and um, hermeticism and um, alchemy like there's there's a lot in this book on like the alchemical and Jungian stuff that um, all of these guys were into and it seems like Terence McKenna himself was like his kind of homegrown cosmology was highly Jungian and highly developed around like the philosopher's stone and yes You'd have to look into that yourself because it takes way too long to explain alchemy and what it actually is and how it's not actually about turning actual lead into actual gold and so on. Well, yeah, it, we are. And at the same time, it actually is because, as the book points out, you're supposed to actually do these like chemical practices in order to make your brain uh, a whole lot of stuff. It's, um, yeah, it's a complex uh, subject. And it's all interestingly, the alchemy connection will show up as well in the, uh, the back half of this episode. So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, keep keep, keep keep your eyes open. Uh, yeah, there's going to be. Uh, I think there'll be some links here, but um, anyway. yeah. So the uh, the connection, I think. So um, high weirdness opens. Uh, well, actually, it opens with we were chatting about this before we turned it on. 
uh, one of the longest introductions in the world, which is how you know that you're getting some real-ass nonfiction work. Mm, yeah. These scrubs I, with, th their, with their 10-page introductions, fuck you, no. The introduction should be like 70 pages. And it should be mm. the densest part of the book. <laughs> yeah, that's you it, know it you're reading a, a PhD thesis, so it has yeah. um yeah, it's got to have like, it's got to be very highly cited. There's references yeah. everywhere. It's it's yeah. hugely dense. You could spend ages um, in here. To um to to bracket for people who haven't read this kind of thing before or find it um rather difficult. And to to be fair, reading this kind of stuff is difficult even when you're used to it. Um. A structural component to keep in mind is that, especially for a PhD thesis or for like a really weighty, like very serious nonfiction book, not one that's meant for like, not even to decry them, but it's not meant for an airport and potentially even not meant for like a Barnes and Noble or something. Um, the meat of your book is supposed to be the contributing elements, which is mostly citing a fact and then elaborating on it using your expert faculties and counter interrogating it with other facts, things like that. That part typically is the easiest read. Um, structurally, though, you have to prime the ground for where your interrogations are going to be and priming the ground, especially for very particular critiques or insights is, as we were mentioning, um, universally, regardless of the type of uh, the specific book you're reading, a shitload of citations, a shitload of references to people that you may or may not know. And it can be tempting to skip that due to the intense density, but that's also where we get such tragic misreads of texts that people propose later, is that introduction is meant to be the contextualizing frame and the more you read this stuff, the more it becomes very painfully clear that the frame that we approach any given work is actually normally much bigger than the work itself. And mm -hmm. making sure that frame is right before you read the information so you know where to point your intuition is a uh, difficult process. And so I was, uh, I was satisfied when it took me uh, a solid like two ass weeks to read the 50 page introduction. <laughs> And then I read the remaining 50 pages uh, the back half of the same day. And not the remaining 50 pages, but I read like, I doubled the amount that I read in a single day compared to the two weeks of reading the intro. Yeah, there's a lot in here. There's like Derridomics at appearance. There's tons of stuff on alchemy and hermeticism and Buddhism and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, just masses of stuff in here and it's kind of all required reading because all three of the book subjects are um, just crazy polymaths none of them have really any apart from uh, Terence McKellar has some like background and his brother Dennis I think it's Dennis um, yeah has um is an actual trained I think it's anthropologist or something similar um, yeah, and that's that's how they were able to get connections with these Aboriginal cultures to, um, mm -hmm. because it technically was part of anthropological um, practice and study. Yeah. So, but yeah, these guys are all self-taught about everything, and virtually everything. And uh, Marshall McLuhan is a huge part of this. And um, so, if you Latour don't know, what... and uh, Guattari are both oh, like yeah. Big, major. Yeah figures in um how he parses them to be fair the way that he uses um 
those two, and also uh, McLuhan as well. Um, he uses them in a very transparent way, and uh, it hits on the aspect of um, those three thinkers that in the 20th and now in the 21st century, going back and reading them will feel familiar even if you've never read them before just because their methodologies of parsing ontology and communication have like they are how we discuss these topics now yeah so same with um the situationists if you read like um guide aboard stuff it's it sounds quaint now and uh, Roland Barthes' Mythologies, which is like a favorite of uh, humanities teachers around the world, like the idea that, oh, wrestling is fake. You, there are goody wrestlers and bad wrestlers. I, I never knew that. Tell me more, Mr. Barthes. Um, yeah, so it's not going to be an easy read. I mean, it's put out by MIT, so you yeah. can tell like the kind of audience it's going for. But, and specifically, um, it's worth noting that that intersection, the very strange intersection that MIT would be putting out a book on weirdness and weird culture, I think also hits at the particular um, the particular angle of this they're trying to get at. Like, it doesn't feel... Uh, it's part of why this book appealed so much um, to me and, and to Gareth, is it doesn't feel just like rhapsodizing about this stuff, which... Mm. I'm not going to lie, I like that shit too. But I also know not to promote that in the same way because that's that's like the junk food of high weirdness of just being like, oh, this shit's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. This one felt like a, uh, a much more satisfying, um, dense digestion. I was actually less enthused by um, the chunks of the McKenna chapter that I wrote. I say chapter. That chapter is over 100 pages long. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah it's worth noting this book has uh, five chapters and it is uh, 580 pages hmm. I mean there are sub chapters within the yeah. um, so there's the 70 self, the magic molecules the birth of psych- psychedelic culture there's, and there's bits on the three different guys and the yeah. um they always ha- they have like stupid punny names to the subchapters. So it's usually. worth bringing up the um the the introduction. I think is is mandatory reading because he lays down a lot of the philosophical um, interrogation methods that he's going to be using in the book. But um, the chunks of the first and second chapter I mostly skimmed over um, because those feel that's necessary historical groundwork for anyone who isn't aware of how specifically western psychedelic culture came to be um and the various angles that hit it but for anyone who's been immersed in this stuff for a while even if you're not like an active drug user like i haven't actively used drugs in like 10 years now like it's a long time um you know about uh hoffman's bike ride and um the CIA interrogations of um, usage of psychedelics as potential truth serums. and Like, all of those things are crazy and bonkers and very, uh, but also kind of old hat. Um, so the first two chapters, if you're very familiar with that, it's um, an interesting and robust uh, examination of that stuff, but that's not like the meat of the book. 
And he knows that pretty well structurally. That's why he put those first. Because it's like, you can't... It also makes sense that he put McKenna before Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick. Because as much as those two are very jocular and seem to be easy to approach in certain ways, they also have... Um, both Dick and Wilson have this mysterious and tremendous depth to their work that, uh, can, Gareth, can you imagine the structure of this book if they, if they had the McKenna chapter, like after Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson? <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Especially if you, if you did like, uh, Wilson, Dick, McKenna, that would be the absolute nightmare mode to read this book. <laughs> real, like, that's like, uh, yeah, 100% no armor version of doing this book. Because, yeah, Robert Anderson Wilson kind of, not as bad as Philip K. Dick, he kind of had a, what Western medicine would call a mental breakdown, his Chapel Perilous uh, experience. Philip K. Dick had a very well-publicized and very long and difficult breakdown, mystical experience. And Terence McKenna had a kind of, yeah, he did, did a lot of drugs, saw some weird stuff, wrote some weird stuff, kind of lived life. He wasn't, yeah, he kind of had an okay time of it compared to the other two. The uh, the other two with uh, their, um, the nature of their mental breakdowns and how those affected them uh, are also paralleled with, um, so there's uh, two strains here that I want to point out. One is that there's been increasing evidence um, that Nietzsche may not have actually suffered from syphilis, but may actually have um, had effectively like a stress-induced mental breakdown, basically mm -hmm. thought himself crazy. Um, yep, if anyone could do it. Right? Um, now, to, again, I say increasing evidence. It's, it's still, um, there's still a good bit of some medical evidence that it may have been a medical issue and may not have necessarily been syphilis. It could have been... Um, some other underlying causes. So I'm not saying that like, yeah, 100% he just thought himself crazy, but there is um, increasing, as we learn more about psychology and are going back and rereading certain like letters and journals, it's like, oh, he may actually have been experiencing blips of this prior and just pushed further and further into it. Um, one, this parallels very well with Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick, where their breakdowns don't come early in either of their careers. They're already immersed in working in the fields that um, that we associate with their breakdown prior to the event of the breakdown themselves. Um, the breakdown just, like, calcified something in both of them and, mm -hmm. like, shed all aspects of their work except for those components, where they became very fixated on, like... Um, what made this happen in me? You, uh, reading like the journals of Philip K. Dick that have since been edited and released, you see these startling moments of lucidity where he questions like, I might just be going crazy. I might just be making all of this up. And then following that with, um, this fits also Nietzsche's idea that philosophers aren't good role models and their job isn't to be a good role model. Philip K. Dick's next question uh, question after he's like i might just be crazy is mm. i owe it to myself to understand how i got here and not just to move away from it because i think i may be crazy and making all of this up 
which mm-hmm. is again not good life advice, but a sign that he's approached. He approached. How can my own perception of of all of reality, including my experience of self, be so radically decentered and disorganized by one event? I I need to know. Like I don't want to know. It becomes almost like that. Um the sorcerer's obsession, that kind of trope mm. of like, it drives you to devastation, but you simply cannot let it go. Yeah. And uh, Robert Anton Wilson literally exactly said that. And uh, mm. given that he was um, a remarkably intelligent man, he uh, said he normally would comment on that with uh, following it with a tremendous laugh and then being like, don't do what I'm doing, but also I'm pretty aware of what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, like we could call these people psychonauts, and that's usually a term that if people apply it to themselves means I do a lot of drugs and I'm a complete loser. But these guys were like voyaging into their psyche in a like in a dangerous way, in the same way an astronaut goes into space, accepting the dangers because they're gonna hopefully learn something that they can bring back to the rest of us. And I think that kind of ties all three of them together. McKenna did it in, you know, in purely drug-induced phases. He wasn't. He didn't have any sort of breakdowns or anything. He was, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, something that's just drugs. Something that this book I think nails pretty well. I was mostly um, interested in uh, shock and awe. The Robert Anton Wilson uh, chapter yeah. Um, yeah. is. Uh, he's very attentive to the fact that they um, one, they approached uh, these explorations in a kind of folk scientific way. It isn't obviously purely scientific, but they did give themselves um, effectively. Like I'm, I want to poke at this area because I feel a lot of question marks there. So I'm going to approach it in this way and just see what I get. Robert Anton Wilson was specifically very deliberately experimental with like, I'm going to try this spiritual practice and really invest myself emotionally into it and just see what happens. Mm, yeah. You and, see why he's such a big influence on like chaos magic where it like literally tells you like be a Buddhist for a week, be like the biggest Buddhist in the whole world, then be a Muslim for a week. See what that does to you. And him, uh, eventually arriving at this notion of that became again very foundational um 20th and 21st century magic practice which is that none of this is particularly real like he he was much more lucid than he sometimes gets presented and that he's like it doesn't have a fundamental basis in reality you're not actually shifting reality in that way and to to view it that way is is to misread it but you do radically alter your own internal experience of the world. And through that, you alter your perception and engagement with the world, which is just as powerful because then your actual engagement with the world does actually produce tangible change. Um, yeah. Reality and, tunnels, he refers to it as. He, his breakdown was a reality tunnel and he went down several others. And Cosmic Trigger, his like, basically non-fiction Illuminatus book uh, is just full of reality tunnels, which he's like totally unabashed about. He's like, yeah, this is, this is bullshit, but I'm going to pretend it isn't. And that's absolutely fine. Everyone does that all the time. It's just how 
stuff is. It's more real than pretending than trying to find something that's literally real. Yeah, his his fixation, his very um, postmodern, but ultimately very necessary, especially with the shape of how the and this will again become relevant in the second half of this episode, how um, the Internet and mass media uh, eventually became too large for itself and broke down mass media as we know it is now a confederation of a million billion overlapping micromedias. And we in, ingest them like a swarm of uh, spores. Um, and that is both good and bad. Like the, the method itself isn't necessarily good or bad, but it becomes this balancing act of if algorithmically you're driven towards more conspiratorial content, you can get driven by magical thinking uh, into some very icky and awful places. Or you can hit the same, like, conspiratorial stuff that's like, and now because I believe so much in uh, crystals and the magic of the psychonauts that now I must resist ice. And it's like, well, you came to a good place, but you got to it through crystals? <laughs> oh. Okay, um, I'll take it. Which, which, to be fair, if anything, and this is Robert Anton Wilson would laugh a great deal of this. If anything is more a great unearthing of the shifting uh, psychogeography of the human mind, which has always been the same. The nature of its shiftingness, rather, has always been the same, and the nature of our, no matter how rational you think you are, your interjections of magical thinking or deep, deep, deep perspectivism into the way that you have mentally shaped the world and thus engage with it and derive information from it has literally never changed. Something like the internet, and this is, again, touches a bit on the um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, like um, schizotypal analysis. Uh, the very obvious schizophrenia of if the internet was one mind, it would be this profoundly fucked, uh, deeply schizophrenic mind, is a reflection of these buried internalities that we sort of all carry. Like yeah, the internet as a mapping like, of the... We call people going? being like very online, meaning yeah. you're very like the internet in the way you think. There's these weird connections like HTML to all these different things. None of it has any real hierarchy. It's just all glommed together. So being like a Nazi brony or something. And we wind up seeing that this is, uh, we may resist it. We may hear from some people who are like, oh, that's too much of a, you've overly obscured the, like weird critiques of like, oh, this is evading the matter. Some people are just shitty and you just need to, it's not saying that stuff's wrong, but the na the notion of mapping all of the internet to our notions of the collective uh, unconscious, like that very Jungian notion of these primal mythological urges that swell, that we, we see in different cultures. And we can argue that anthropologists maybe misclassify them and use a deeply Western lens to bracket our understanding. But this notion of the imaginative slash magical realist capabilities of pure psychology controlling how we engage with a purely physical and material world and seeing the internet as this manifest version of it 
there is uh, obviously some some mapping there. And for someone like Robert Anton Wilson, he sees this as this. If you view it the right way, you can view it as a playground and have the freedom to swap components at will. Like a weird statement. Um, Robert Anton Wilson uh, actually had quite a number of like pro-trans and pro-queer comments in his life. And ones that seem to directly fly in the face of someone who would be like true scum now. Mm. This notion that you can't just perform an experiment on yourself and go, this actually makes me a lot happier, makes me feel a lot more fulfilled and a lot more at peace with myself and the world around me. I'm, I'm a man now, or I'm mm. non-binary, I guess. Like, that it's that notion of exploration being the first step of self-actualization uh but exploration bounded with self-honesty like you're allowed to lie to yourself at first to get yourself to experience something and then mm -hmm. so long as you're honest about what you're experiencing and the potential values there you're allowed to just choose the paths that you desire more yeah i mean sexual experimentation is something that like most people engage in with some degree. I mean, it's obviously yeah. much more difficult to experiment with your gender because, you know, to go all the way in one direction means you know, hormones and surgery. But, um, yeah. you know, people do, but as, you know, um, oh, who was it? The Kin Kinsey. Yeah. As Kinsey pointed out, that, you know, people experiment with stuff literally all the time. As kids, as adults, as everything, they keep it from themselves. They keep it from other people. They don't. Someone, it's, it's, but eventually, you a lot of people do kind of come to a realization about themselves that I am X, and that's kind of what I'm into now. I've done my exploring and have come home. It's like a little hero's journey thing. And we see, so if. If Robert Anton, so obviously, if, if McKenna is this necessary thing because you can't really talk about this stuff without talking about McKenna, like, whether you like him or not, he's just sort of like this undeniable figure in that space. And if Robert Anton Wilson is perhaps the most day-to-day -day applicable, like, um, even if you don't necessarily like his writing, the level of his playfulness and... Uh, like literature's thought experiment um, and his very post-McLuhan approach to engaging with uh, the vastness of the potentials of the world, all that kind of stuff. It's fitting that he ends on Philip K. Dick because Philip K. Dick is one of the most mysteriously dense, um, one of the most mysteriously dense thinkers in science fiction literature, even when it feels like his idea should be very flimsy and simple. Mm. He, yeah. uh... I mean, people have this idea that Philip K. Dick is just, like, a guy who wrote Black Mirror before Black Mirror. But it's way bigger than that. Way bigger. Oh, God. Like, as big as the moon. Absolutely. It huge. reminds me of people who only... It, their their critical read of Evangelion is it's about critiquing the culture around anime and manga mm. and yeah. ignore it's a deconstruction of the mecha genre 
no oh, one's ever cool. used the method oh. construction right correctly. Uh, yeah, I I agree, and we could probably make a whole last episode on like how that. It's not that the word has lost its meaning. It's that uh, you can tell in one sentence uh, someone using it whether you should listen to them when they use that word ever again. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, people who have that read instead of engaging at any moment with the very, very, very obvious uh, theological questions will have similar difficulty with um philip k dick's um intense theological meditations on the relationship of i don't saying man to god is technically a correct bracketing but that one again has that yeah. specifically has been sucked of all meaning so yeah. i mean so is evangelion but i mean true. philip k dick's god isn't a man in the clouds in a white robe it's way huger than that and his concept of valis and like that as an aspect of god or a way of looking at god but with a specifically like sci-fi tinge to it because he's ultimately a sci-fi writer so when i was when he has these encounters with god they're gonna be uh the lens he looks at them is obviously gonna be sci-fi like so it's uh, worth parsing it's worth parsing what Philip K. Dick thinks God is, because that will also help people. Um, and Davis does a, an absolutely stupendous fucking job of this. Um, that the notion of God, when people are talking in that theological space, has more to do with... Um, so there is a... Uh, there's an anonymously written uh, book by a mystic monk or a monk who happened to be a mystic. It's, I phrased that weird um, in the 12th century called the cloud of unknowing. And it's this really profound Christian mystic text. And it's also freely available online and it's very short and I recommend you read it. It's really great. And it talks at length about the darkness of God, not the light of God. Presume, uh, specifically because the light is so blindingly perfect and resplendent that it blinds you. And mm. in that blindness, it becomes a darkness. And that darkness is the cloud of unknowing itself. That It's this vast, permanently unknowable space that is so bright and perfect that it becomes unknowable. This is obviously, it's easy to read that as a chintzy kind of like, oh, it's a Christian who really liked God. But... The way that he means it is God in that space, in the mystic sense of God, isn't, again, as Gareth was saying, a man in the clouds. It is the totality of the universal other. It is every material and immaterial thing outside of the self. It's so literally it is, alien. It is, the, it is definitionally alien. Hmm. Like, I, I'm, I'm just piggybacking on what you said not yeah. saying you were wrong it's no. just, it was, yeah it's, it's by definition the most alien a thing could be it's like so something that falls under the bracket of god in that space is the notions and experiences of chaos and of order and of the attempted reconciliations of 
is chaos just perceived chaos because I'm seeing only a fragment of a grander order and so it appears to be chaos to me? Or is order itself a random fluke in an overall universal chaos that statistically could generate moments of order in its randomness? There's uh, a bit in um, uh, G.K. Chesterton's uh, Man Who Was Thursday, where which I'm 100% sure Robert Hamilton Wilson's read, where these two anarchists, one of them is a secret police spy, are talking about whether it's more beautiful for a train track to get blown up or for a train to arrive at its station. That kind of reminds me of the, is chaos, is order, does order really, does order just look like that because it's actually chaos and we're just putting faces and clouds on it? It's, is chaos really an actual higher order? Um, later in the book, God does turn up. but um, And so some people would be, some people's approaches to these kinds of questions are, well, you know, that's all fine, but you're kind of wasting your time. We have the world in front of us and we need to. But to someone like Philip K. Dick, so someone like Robert Anton Wilson, it's um, directed at the self first and then through that the world of like, well, we can experiment with how we think about these things and that can affect how how we approach them and that can actually have effect. If you merely go stop wasting my time we need it's um it reminds me of like the way you get to like more women police or more women prison mm -hmm. guards is when you don't allow yourself to conceive of maybe the nature of the problem is different mm -hmm. um if yeah. you are only thinking in that one vector and you don't go we can imagine another world and then start developing methodologies to arrive at that world then the only solutions you get are these like moving the masks around rather than removing them. Uh, likewise, Philip K. Dick takes it to this more um, this more tremendous space of like really sitting and ruminating on uh, like people will misread the man in the high cap as just like, oh, it's just what if Nazis won, that's really, and then we'll read it as like lazy and politically um shitty especially in a sensitive time like now but he one he proposes that in that work more to sit with this rumination of what are these vaster questions how are they resolved and how are they experienced by people within these spaces but two he makes that literal by one of the characters using so a two-part factoid here. The characters in the book use the Tao Te Ching to guide their actions and through that become aware that they are one of a potentiality of worlds in which a character who, who is Philip K. Dick in the book <laughs> has written a novel about our world, which is his universe's version of the Man in the High Castle book, which is Philip K. Dick writing about their world. And he did this because Philip K. Dick drew from the Tao Te or uh, not Tao Te Ching. He drew from the I Ching. That's what I Ching. I Ching. He drew from the I Ching himself, not only to decide plot beats for the book, but also it was during an I Ching uh, drawing that the notion of the book presented itself to him. 
And so he seized on no, that but notion it's about of Trump. Trump's a Nazi, and and Hillary is the uh, not Nazi. So that's it's about Trump. Yeah. And what's weird is we get Philip K. Dick actually probably wouldn't have an issue with that specific read because one of the benefits of people who have this kind of vastness of thought is they aren't going to resist a specific mapping. The beauty of these um formal structures that they play with is if you're like hey i can make a strong case for this specific moment mapping onto it they'd be like well yeah that's the point okay that's valid then there you go like <laughs> because he's if robert anton wilson is obsessed or if mckenna is obsessed with uh perception and how perception is substantially more malleable than we think and Wilson is obsessed with this notion of once we accept the the inherent weirdness of even common perception, like the notion of what you're supposed to bring back is that even our notions of normality are intensely weird and perforated with um, what uh, like Bonnie or Eugene Thacker would refer to as like ontological holes. Like, it's the kind of thing that any even armchair teenage philosopher, but even, like, very serious, very studied philosophers run into. The more you interrogate even what feel like very basic foundational questions, we start hitting these breakdowns that are only resolved by a communal decision not to interrogate it. Hmm. Like yeah. like the universal um, diegesian uh, mindfuck of describe to me in words, something that is definitionally a chair and only a chair. Mm, yeah. And well, Wittgenstein's whole thing about what's a game? Yes. Like, how is football's a game? So's Dark Souls. So's uh, Chinese checkers. So's a mi million different things. So is nuclear war. Every You can't ever get a handle on what's a game, but everyone knows what a game is, right? And even in moments where you can accurately map it, people will say, no, it is improper to map it for reasons ancillary to its correctness. And he doesn't resist that. He's not saying that's wrong. Wittgenstein points out, it's actually very interesting to think that there are moments where you can accurately describe an object as, as something, as having this title. And yet it must be made unspeakable due to these other components. And... That's a fascinating thing if you start thinking about it, that an aspect of an identity isn't denied, it's made unspeakable, and everyone agrees that it should be, including Wittgenstein, because he's like, yeah, framing thermonuclear war as a game improperly frames certain aspects of it, but it's very intriguing that we contain these vastness of plural identities, some of which are true but must not be said. Hmm. And that proposes some very interesting philosophical questions about um, th the elaboration there is what is true identity if if we already contain these things that we can't mention. And so someone like Philip K. Dick, his approach to those kinds of very big formal questions, that is God to mm. Philip K. Dick, is the yeah. super complex of these interrelated they're theological questions because you can map any of the specific philosophical or sociological or psychological sets of questions 
onto the theological. You can't so much do that uh, holographically, like across the board. Like you can't map psychology directly to sociology. They're interrelated very deeply, but you can't necessarily make it one-to-one. However, you can project all of that onto the supposed imaginative space slash speculative space of theology um, because theology is just humanity's attempt, very first attempt, like literally, historically, our very first attempt at grappling with um, macro scale questions and the experience of the world outside of ourselves. Like initially explaining lightning was the realm of theology, but also explaining social cohesion and morality and psychological experience and mental wellness and medicine were all theology. It's not to say that God as we know it, it must be literally real for that or anything. It's just that we have this notion now, and you'll run into people now who mean very well, but um, will say that like theology itself is just the question of like, oh, is God real or something? Yeah. Instead of it being this he arrives at the or he for dick the the connectedness of theology and weirdness are like uh, profound and near 100% because it's quite literally god of the gaps for him these ontological holes in all the ways that we understand the world behind them he sees this um not the face of god isn't like the literal face of a man but just this vast tapestry of questions upon questions upon questions that literally drove him crazy. <laughs> yep. So yeah. Um, yeah. This book is a mind fuck and it's supposed to be, and it should be because that's like the only way you can do these guys justice is by being completely straight faced. I mean, it, the way it's written is, is very, um, is close in style to these guys as well. It's not, it's not, very academic in terms of its language it's quite uh, playful a lot of the chapter titles are silly puns like shroom with a view Ugh. but um <laughs> yeah it's uh it i think it's one you're gonna have to like set some time aside for if you're someone who's into these guys then this is pretty much essential at this point um you know this is one of the biggest scholars of high weirdness like his magnum opus is this book so yeah it's um like i say it's big it's difficult there's a million different ways you can approach this and you can every page has 50 footnotes you could go off in a million directions in it's gonna like give birth to the next 100 uh terence mckenna philip k dix and robert anton wilson's so yeah big 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 ups to this um yeah really really enjoyed high weirdness I'm going to get on to another thing that Langdon's going to talk about for the next six hours. Um, Look, it'll <laughs> only be for about four and a half hours. <laughs> okay, four and a half. I, I can manage four and a half. Uh, the band Opeth, which I, I, <laughs> which I believe you're a fan of. Uh, yeah, just just a little bit. They're yeah, uh, like the early stuff. I, uh, so Opeth was, uh, I've written about this um quite a bit now in quite a lot of places and i keep pitching to write about it more um i ran into death metal before opeth i had 
uh, a cousin who lived in Florida in the 90s. So he just encountered this stuff and freaked me and my brother out with like Cannibal Corpse and Morbid Angel and stuff. Just tight. But the first time I loved a death metal band was when I first heard Demon of the Fall. It was right about when Blackwater Park uh, came out and everyone was buzzing about it. And I was a young kid on the internet. And someone on a forum was like, this band's baller. And it's like, oh, I haven't heard them before. Oh, here's a link to a song that you would dig. And this was before YouTube. So you had to download it or find some shitty website where it was like, where there was an MP2 streaming or something. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, just, I was like 11 and it just blew my fucking socks off. It's around about 2000 yeah. or 2001. Hmm. Um, I must have been about the same age and kind of because uh, this uh, the song "The Drapery Falls," which is going to be yeah. like always my favorite Opeth song because it's the very first one I heard, was on a, a Kerrang magazine uh, CD. They used to have like CDs on the cover with like compilations. Some of them were like picked by bands, and they were had some like really cool stuff on there. And um, "The Drapery Falls" was on one of them. It was an edited version, which so it's about six seven minutes. And it didn't have to the full, like eleven. Yeah, so it didn't have it didn't have the more overtly death metal bits, like the parts where the the singer actually does a, a death growl were kind of edited out. And I'm not sure why, because it wasn't like Karen didn't also do other death metal. It had like it was for a very long time like the premier metal magazine. So I I actually know the brief story behind that. That was a um, an edit that the band and record label oversaw, not Kerrang, oh. um, with the attempt to okay. get like um, terrestrial metal radio and okay. uh, especially the burgeoning internet radio um, yeah. scene, like yeah, that now every television has. Yeah. Obviously, work because you know it was on yeah. the front cover of like the biggest metal magazine in or rock magazine in in Britain. And I think yeah, it was and, on, like, uh, what's his name? John Peel, uh, who's, like, a, a hugely influential DJ. So um, I think he was into this band, too. So, yeah, yeah kind so of... Yeah, so it just... If you like heavy metal, someone has told you about Opeth at some point. If you hmm. don't like heavy metal, there's a 50% chance someone has told you about Opeth at some point. They're just... Regardless of how... About how one feels about them, they are 100% going to go down as like one of like the canonical bands the same way that like Judas Priest and Slipknot are canonical hmm. and you're yeah. allowed to maybe well, not like some of them but, album, but uh, you know I still respect the hustle yeah uh, still, well it's, it's you know, one of those I things know where... they're, like in I know they're in the canon yeah exactly that, that's my point is that someone may look at Slipknot and be like I don't really like their music but it's like yeah but you can't talk about the story of heavy metal likewise hmm. with like we can have our feelings about Pantera. If you're not dumb, you probably can guess how we feel about Pantera. Um, but you also can't tell the story of heavy metal without talking about them. Yeah. And unfortunately, it, most unfortunately, Burzum. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, that, yeah. That's the, the, the ultimate black mark in, in metals, the ultimate skeleton in metals closet, I think. Like that literally everyone likes the album Philosophem and no one wants to talk about it anymore for good reason. Yeah, still like still got the, the riff of uh, Jesus Todd stuck in my head sometimes. Yeah, it's a it's a great riff and he just sucks ass and should die. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fact. You see, if he died, we could listen to his music 
guilt-free because it wouldn't be supporting it. No, no. It, it, it's still it's still no it was made by a neo-nazi face okay guy. you're right you're right okay so it, it was like saying it, you could read mein kampf guilt-free now that's true okay yeah i'm thinking about it and i have to walk that one back um okay. but so uh opeth has this immensely storied career of they didn't invent progressive death metal death metal always had that sort of proggy interjection but they did it in a specific way that made it sounds cheap now but in the mid 90s for people who did not listen to extreme metal to go you know actually this band's really good um was a big deal like it's hard historically to wrap our heads around now where mastodon are considered not just a canonical metal band but a canonical rock band like the story mm -hmm. of rock music will include talking about mastodon um but, maybe even death heaven in time yeah but there was this long stretch where that was absolutely not the case and even talking about like iron maiden you'd get you know feel like, oh, i'm more into tom petty that kind of and be mm. like the guys in iron maiden are into tom petty everyone likes tom <laughs> petty like you don't that's not but this is also great rock music um mm. yeah i mean this was the so, time when when new metal yeah so and yeah. Being being a young kid in that era where I wasn't, I, I can't lie and say that I didn't like any new metal, but encountering something like this, I encountered Opeth the same time I encountered Mr. Bungle and mm. stuff like that. And it just like, it, with, within a year, because of reading interviews with Opeth, I checked out, yes, for the first time. I checked out Genesis before Phil Collins became the front man i also checked out i went back and i checked out morbid angel and fell in love with that i like people may be embarrassed by it now but opeth opened a tremendous number of doors for an unimaginably large number of people hmm. like we get a lot of people fronting on them now but the shape of heavy metal would be like nearly completely different without hmm. a group like yeah, like uh, Agalok probably wouldn't be around. Maybe even Wolves in the yeah. Phone Room. Yeah, um, it's just... Kind of any of the prog met Maybe even Mastodon would sound completely different. Yeah, because it's not even just the direct, like, oh, I want to sound like Opeth, of which there were a ton of bands, but also just the way that in the middle of the 90s, when prog was super fucking not cool, they were straight up like, yeah, I love weird, ultra-dorky prog rock. Because it's good. The songs are good. Um, getting people who didn't think they liked extreme metal to listen to extreme metal because they had those other components. Getting people who liked extreme metal but maybe wrote off those other things to be like, no, Cat Stevens can write a fucking song. You need to listen to Buddha in the Chocolate Box. And you're like, what? And then you listen and you're like, holy shit, this is a great album. Um, and as they went on, they eventually... the the famous thing amongst fans were, oh, they became shit. Um, they stopped really being death metal at all and switched fully to prog rock. Uh, which, the writing was on the fucking wall for that. I have no sympathy <laughs> for those people. Like, you, you're gonna tell me that you listen to Opeth, literally any Opeth album, and you were like, these guys are never gonna make a straight-up prog rock album. You're stupid. You're <laughs> stupid. Like, Ghost Reveries got lambasted when it came out for only having maybe two metal tracks. 
Do people forget that? Do people forget that Blackwater Park was controversial because of how much non-metal was on it? Literally every Opeth album, they were getting like, this is, they've gone soft. They released Damnation. Blackwater Park sounds like um, fucking revenge compared to their new stuff. And so when they make this transition, uh, not to be one of them, true fans versus fake fans, but also literally, yeah, like, you really can't say that you were a fan of Opeth and then be like, I hate that they went fully prog rock. Be like, dog, like 60% of any Opeth album is this. Like, this, this has been most of what they do for a long time. Um, <laughs> granted, granted, we can have uh, Heritage was definitely a messy album. Um, full of, it was them leaping headlong into the water. And being like, fuck it, we just gotta do it. Um Yeah. I remember the interviewing Kerrang with that and, and looking at um I forget the singer's name, but he was like wearing a full on like like a, a waistcoat with like tassels and his he had a big handlebar mustache. He looked like Frank Zappa. He was just yeah. like Yeah, he'd he had really uh, committed to the bit at that point. And also, to be honest, they partly did it because what the fuck else are they going to say in the style they were doing before? Like, they have more than one canonical record under their belt at that point. Like, the, what, what, like why are they just going to keep cranking out? And this is more than 10 albums into their career. I think it actually was album 10, Heritage. Um, but So, like, people are also act, uh, frame it really weird as though I, I don't know I, I'm not very sympathetic to it um the band was over 20 years into their career when they shifted direction and only slightly um Pale Communion is by most people considered like if Heritage was them like fuck it let's try it Pale Communion was them fine tuning it mm-hmm. I don't think anyone who likes progressive rock can listen to Pale Communion and say that that's a bad record that's an incredibly strong really phenomenal album like moon above sun below fucking incredible song um goblin incredible song um uh cup of eternity just absolutely stupendous like uh river of treason um incredible um sorceress was another like okay we nailed this prog rock thing let's throw them heavy riffs back in there um, and it was, again, messy, but promising. Um, the single we're about to play off of their upcoming record, the best way to describe the upcoming album is the fine-tuning of the idea of Sorceress, of taking their new, like, we're just a prog rock band, but we want to have really heavy, doomy, metallic riffs again. It just won't have growls. And this is them going like, now let's nail them. Also, they're finally releasing their first album in full Swedish. The new album is going to come out in two versions. One is the English language version and one is the Swedish version. I think it's tight. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We're going to play the English version, but um, yeah, the Swedish version is out there if you we need to hear this exact same song but with different lyrics and um yeah so this is heart in hand off opeth's new album which come out in i think a couple of months uh um, yeah it's september yep 
so yeah month and a half i guess and um yeah check it out it's uh like seven minutes long so strap yourselves in Be forbidden.